0: Swampside Chats, the podcast where communists shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This time, on a very special episode of Swamp Side Chats, we jack back into the simulation with postmodern provocateur Jean Baudrillard's Chronicle of French Politics from 1977 through 1984, entitled The Divine Left, published in 1985. And we say goodbye to another of our dear panelists. More on that after the show. This conversation was recorded on April 26, 2020. Almost exactly a month before the murder of George Floyd by police and the all too brief reemergence of a proletarian movement which followed.
1: Welcome to the simulation.
2: Masking the absence that there ever was a reality to begin with. <laughs> so, part of the reason I wanted to uh, revisit Baudrillard, even though I could disagree with him, even though a lot of his stuff strikes me as kind of all over the place, I do enjoy his provocations especially now as like the catastrophe like escalates, I do kind of feel some sympathy for his catastrophism. And I feel more and more that we really are more so than Reagan living in like the Baudrillardian presidency. Like Trump is the Baudrillardian (laughs) president. I just want to actually jump to like a passage where he's talking about Reagan, like kind of just describes this situation more so. In the end, if our society is indeed a society of simulation, shouldn't its leaders be great simulators, professionals of simulation? Reagan is certainly the perfect representative of America, which in that respect is an absolute democracy. He represents the final promotion of the advertising slogan, you're the best at the political level, the revenge of spectacle and publicity on politics, and thus also the revenge of the people against the political class. If you don't like it too bad for you, this is the era of smiling professional mutants and self-regenerating optimism. I'm going to cut a little ahead here. But the fact that Reagan is such a perfect representation takes all political qualities away from him. There is no political dimension left to society that perfectly conforms to its incarnate truth. It is lost. Its senile euphoria has begun. I'm surprised by the amount of times he uses the word truth here and really seems to mean it. Yeah, isn't that interesting? The phrase senile euphoria really, I think, probably describes like the present state of the United States, (laughs) like the election, the debates of like Biden and Trump. And I know they have like the right like cocktail of drugs they can give to Biden to make him seem normal for an hour and a half.
1: After having to make several campaign appearances outside of the Walt Disney cryogenic chamber that they usually keep him in. (laughs) Right. It seems to really drain his life force when he has to speak to voters.
2: He could be the first president whose Hall of Presidents animatronic actually governs for him in office. (laughs) Like reading Baudrillard is kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's like reading Nietzsche or something like there's something relatable about it. Even you find aspects of it to be very reactionary.
1: And I think oftentimes it'll be salient in reverse in certain ways you know, for me, a lot of this text is really interesting because it's, it's back in the 70s and he's really lamenting the death of politics in a way that reminds me of like a theologian who has predicted secularization.
0: Lamenting is, uh,
1: doesn't do justice
0: to the tone of this text at all. He's almost masturbating.
1: What do you mean by almost masturbating?
0: I think whatever disappointment he may have felt by like the failures of the proletariat to remake the world have long since passed from this writer's heart. I mean, this stuff is being written in like the early 80s, you know what I mean? If Baudrillard had high hopes, it was probably around 68 or something. And now he's like, by his own admission and other texts, essentially nihilistic. You know, it's kind of funny. We usually have a conversation that usually goes something like this. Anti-politics Grant is looking for the sort of reassertion of the social over the political. Neil Kowski is Jake is looking for, you know, a way to get like the political to, you know, actually reflect something in the social. And Baudrillard is here to say, fuck both of them. You know, fuck all that shit. I'm anti-social and anti-political. Let it all burn. It's all part of the same dumb conversation.
1: I'm surprised to hear you say that you think he's not upset by the death of the political. I mean, there's so much in here, really, that, that strikes me as upset about the reversal of the political into simulation and, you know, things of that nature.
0: He's speaking as a sort of prophet. He's telling you this is how it's going to be. And he's telling you this is how it's going to be to a degree while it's like unfolding as such. And there's a lot of people in France at the time that have postponed hopes. And I mean, the Communist Party in France, this is an institution that had the dignity of the resistance behind it. Yeah, in 68, you know, it basically soiled itself, but... This was an institution that is, like, really important in French civil society or whatever. And, like, this is a humiliating moment for them. But I think what you're reading as, like, being upset is really a form of sadism. For instance, if you read, like, Monsieur Dupont and, you know, all the cruel things they say about militants there is an element where you know this is coming from a dejected ex-militant or something but it's also like one that's already kind of had those moments and now is striking out at the people that are currently like the person he used to be <laughs> yeah
2: there's a sense of well yeah this is what you get this right is what happens
0: i don't know what about this text doesn't drip with you know, disgusting, sadistic Frenchmen enjoying the pain of the young.
2: I said, if you left that food out, we were going to get ants. Now we have ants. Good job. <laughs> also, you know, because there is kind of like a euphoria to doomerism. You know, yeah. John Bradgeard is kind of like the cybernetic avatar of, you know, like, you know, he's like the Matrix doomer. But there's other parts where he just sounds coked up in this. There's one where it's like, um, so this is neither a revolution nor historic event, but a long delayed post historic delivery of sorts. A sort of deliverance, but very particular. That the hidden child of capital in French society—it germinates, it incubates, it bursts forth, it invades all at once. It's exactly like an alien. The left is a monster, an alien. And the <laughs> event of a whole reveals itself in a gigantic special effect. Very successful, by the way. A blind ecstasy on the moral path of a popular destiny. Basically, by the halfway mark,
0: the writing style of this book really starts to spiral out of control. I was surprised how, like, matter-of-fact, and I hesitate to say discipline, but, you know, sort of to the point, a lot of this is. To the point for a guy that writes in hyperbole and then says, I'm not speaking in metaphor, but, you know, with this politically dissect socialism, with this ecstatic yet asexual socialism, I believe that we are literally entering an era of ready to believe just as fashion was entered the era of ready to wear fashion too is ecstatic and transsexual. Like right before that, he says, and I don't say this lightly or metaphorically, like the secret to reading Baudrillard is his idea of the hyper real gives you everything you need to know about what he feels like his responsibility is to give you like a literal model of the true of like the real thing. He snarks at it.
2: He doesn't believe you can even do that more. So like the process of doing that will just drive you crazy.
0: But the strange thing is, is that he really does, especially when he's talking about the Communist Party, what's actually happening underneath, he still makes recourse to language of truth. Like, that was something that I just didn't expect from him.
2: That's like a thing of nihilism. It's basically like mourning something that was lost, you know. And so there's always like a melancholic, like backward looking aspect. Like, it can only like, you still speak in like the language of the thing that feels is hopeless. You know.
0: Right. He's good at describing that, too, being kind of lost in the historical nostalgic void, and not being able to get out. But also, it's not even that the time went by, but like it wasn't even what it was supposed to be at the time. That time has passed anyway. But you can't right. stop. It's really funny. Between that silly sentence about asexual socialism and the left is the monster and alien, he says this the new representatives of the people are certainly naive. They believe their election means popular approbation and consensus. They never suspect that there is nothing more ambiguous than pushing someone into power or the fact that what people enjoy most is to witness the failure of the political class. Somewhere in the inmost depths of the famous popular consciousness, the political class, whatever it is, remains the primary enemy. At least one hopes so. If there's something that Baudrillard It's not just that like, oh, people are being, you know, hoodwinked out of being represented or something. No, people are actively avoiding the channels of representation in society in a way that betrays some sort of internal rationality that as a Marxist, you normally say, oh, you know, people are being managed out of their agency, which, you know, that's partially true. I think you can't say that. That's completely baseless. But then there's something else. If you kind of don't allow yourself to be represented in a way that you think is gonna be like bullshit anyway, then you can stand apart and watch it fail <laughs> without being invested
1: to the degree that you might have. There's this great part where he talks about, I think he calls it the shrug of the social. Well, it's one part where he mentions Hitler and, and the concentration camps that's interesting, that's kind of around that. He's talking about, let me just find it, I apologize. Yeah, so
2: I'm trying to find something, but I should have labeled these things better.
1: Likewise. It's easy to get different parts of it confused with each other, actually.
0: Yeah. Jake, you pointed this out to me. But one of the funny things about reading this right now is that the obvious political metaphor would not only be for, like, Trump and Reagan, but also for, like, the self-defeat of the Communist Party not being a strategy of failure, but perhaps, like, it should be best described as a failure to strategize at all.
2: Yeah, Another reason I kind of wanted to read this is the Mitterrand era. And that's like, I was kind of expecting Bernie Sanders to like win the primary and so that, you know, Mm -hmm. have the old like Mitterrand conversation, but having actually read this now and Biden basically seeming to have walked away with the fucking uh, primaries, it makes me feel like the democratic party is the party he's really talking about in this book (laughs) and that like, they don't actually want power. They just want to have like their privileged oppositional position.
1: Well, there's there's so much where in this book about the use of or the dedication to short term political interests actually overriding what could actually put parties in positions of power because they're so blinded by their incentives to the extent that the Communist Party had just become really integrated.
2: I believe they formed the Fourth Republic with De Gaulle. It was basically De Gaulle. And then the communists were like the two parties in government. And they basically, in that period, they didn't align with the Eastern Bloc. So they were always kind of in a position where, like the impression that I got just kind of like reading a little bit about this era was that on some level, it seemed like the left in France hadn't fully realized maybe to like what extent their political ambitions for like social change and economic change were predicated upon France being one of the main centers of the global imperialist order. You know, because this is a point where that was pretty much completely over and they were a second rate power compared to the United States or even like Germany as like an economic source in the Eurozone. They were basically at a point where like their policies, so long as they stayed within capitalism and stayed in the Western bloc, were pretty much limited by the kind of larger monetary policy and economic decisions of the United States that they had to keep their currency competitive with in order to not further exacerbate the capital flight of like a socialist government. They were kind of in this like objectively fucked situation because they weren't prepared to do what would have been maybe necessary to actually go against capitalism in the rhetoric that the left was pushing under the Mitterrand campaign, which would be to either basically switch blocks or trying like gamble on like raising up like the European proletariat as a whole. It was totally conceived within like national boundaries. Also, if you look at the kind of the rhetoric at the time, there really does seem to be a lot of wishful thinking about the 80s and that whole neoliberal era as just being capitalists, just being greedy and the money men just being basically stingy, so to speak. We're basically going to take them on and then everything will be fine.
1: I think something he's really hammering in on is the delusions that people are going under at that time. You know, Esri, before you made the comment you made about The nihilism of it, I suppose. I was disturbed by some of the implications in this next passage, Mm. but it is possible to read it in the context of kind of poking fun at where the political mind might go. So let me just go into this. It's on page 39. He's talking about today's society. Such a fluid, tactile and psychedelic society, such an area of soft technologies is no less ferocious than was the society of heavy industry. We might even feel regret for the dictatorship of the proletariat when faced with the disquieting strangeness of the simulation. It was a clear and vigorous concept. Even the fact that it was a dictatorship over the proletariat made no difference in terms of the utopian transparency of the concept. Even with the ambiguity of its genitive case, it was a strong concept. Today, we no longer even have a proletariat exercising violent dictatorship over itself through an interposed despot. That was the political spirit of the totalitarian state, with its stakes of extermination, the camps being their extreme form, and with the mad dream of the despot putting an end to his own people. In 1945, Hitler ordered the death of the German people. There is nothing today but the fluid and silent masses, and the variable equations of the Poles objects of perpetual tests that like acid dissolve them to test to poll to contact to solicit and to inform it's microbial virulent tactic which ends the social through infinitesimal dissuasion so that doesn't have a chance to crystallize so i mean i don't know about that stuff about polling i i think polls are useful indicators but what it really seems to be saying (laughs) is he's really salient right the era of political reality was that of political dictatorship you know it's like at least the camps were comprehensible. This stuff is so confusing. Could be a kind of political response to what we have today. You know, genocide or a uh, democide is the price of progress. At least there was something happening, et cetera, et cetera. And so at least there is progress. So there is admission. It mucks up the works in certain ways. This kind of, he calls it a refusal to participate that is not passive.
0: Right. I was also the, uh, Main point of his book in the shadow of silent majorities where you have to like, I mean, do we really have such contempt for the proletariat that they're just being hoodwinked or is there something about this that they'd actually like to avoid? He says somewhere in this book that it's only the politicians, you know, that believe in politics anymore, like not believe in politics as in like, you know, our true believers, but yeah. like believe that it has agency in society.
1: And sway, really.
0: Let's see. On page 42... Uh, And, of course, it's in between all, like, you know, very post-structuralist writing in this book. But then there's little nuggets like this. The manifest discourse of this world immersed as it is from left to right in its political realism. But perhaps this realist blindness only affects what one must call the political class, the only people who believe in politics and political representation, just as publicists are the only ones who believe in publicity. Without a doubt, the social and the idea of the social the political, and the idea of the political have never been supported by anything but a minority fraction. Instead of conceiving as a social, as some original condition, a factual reality that encompasses everything else, a transcendental a priori given in the same way as time and space were conceived. L- lovely bong rip parentheticals. I think there is a note in the beginning that says, anytime there's a parenthetical, it was a footnote, but we thought they belonged in the main text. And for the most part, I disagree. Those These things should have been footnotes. Anyway, um, in the same way as time and space were conceived, skipping parenthetical, instead we much ask, who produced the social? Who regulates this discourse? Who has fomented this universal simulation? It seems that a certain cultural, technocratic, rationalizing, and humanist intelligentsia has found in the social a way to conceive of everything else, to frame everything in a universal concept, the only one perhaps, that has, little by little, found itself a grandoise reference, the silent masses from which the essence of the social seems to emerge, and from which its indistinguishable energy shines brightly. But have we considered the fact that most of the time, neither these famous masses nor individuals think of themselves as social, which is to say, conceive of themselves within this perspectival, rational, and panoptic space, which is where the social and its discourse takes place. And then he does go on to say that there are societies without the social and blah, 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 blah.
2: Here's another passage. If it were necessary to retain something of Marx, it would be this. Capital produces the social. That is, capital's essential production, its historical function. The great phases of the social, convulsions and revolutions, coincide with the ascendant phase of capital. But the ejected determinations of capital become blurred. The social does not move beyond it in a dialectical one-upmanship. It too collapses to a dying reality, corresponds a worn-out imaginary. This is what we're witnessing today. The left is dying the same death as power itself. So... Like the social is like the modern form of the sociological society, the society that's like measured and subject to like rationality in a way that maybe, I don't know, like feudal orders or, you know, pre-modern societies weren't. But by creating that, it basically creates something that itself is unsustainable and basically collapses. But he says that it's power that's collapsing. But why power and not just society itself?
1: I think that's yeah. actually one of the contradictions in
2: what he is saying about
1: political power dissolving and the, that having something to do with the dissolution of the social. I mean, if you look on page 29, he basically says that the bourgeoisie ended feudalism, and he doesn't really kind of complicate that at all. It just says, when the bourgeoisie put an end to the feudal order, it truly subverted a total order and code of social relations and substituted another for it. Production, economy, rationality, progress. It depends on whether you you believe that that is saying that the bourgeoisie overturned feudalism by political will or not. Because so much of the delusions on how much it matters about taking power end up in a certain place of like a fetish for what you know political power can do. You know, we look back at the Soviet Union, and there was this inability for all of the concentrated bureaucratic power in the world to even assert itself in order to create a functioning mode of production, let alone to bring that mode of production into communism. And and so if you think about it, even in feudal terms, it was a change in social relations that feudalism itself catalyzed, which then overtook it. You know, the capitalists didn't take state power, except in a mixed way, after capitalism was established and they had ruled for early capitalism, they had ruled in concert with the dying aristocracy. And so it didn't order new relations in its revolutions, it consecrated them, the bourgeoisie.
0: R- right. I think the like, fact-check Baudrillard is maybe not engaging with what the poverty of the socialist thought and proletarian linkage to socialism
1: is there. This attempt to say that the social no longer exists or it's a construct ignores that kind of whatever individuals consider themselves in ideal terms, they participate in social labor as human beings. They're reproducing themselves and they require social production and social relations. Capitalism can't get rid of the social no matter what. And that's one of the biggest thorns in its side, I think, is that the necessity of sociality among the, you know, the free in labor terms, proletariat.
0: But the whole reason that he would even object to the social at all. Is that
1: it's produced right, by capital. capitalism, create its own contradictions and dig its own grave diggers. No, think-
0: not anymore. Basically, he doesn't no, think it does. He,
1: he doesn't think that at all. He thinks that there is a
0: basically a collapsed conversation. The word that he usually uses is implosion. There is an explicit statement and shadow asylum majorities about this. And there's nods to this throughout. That these used to be two terms of like a different conversation, but really like the part of society that's going to be like represented or so-called represented in politics is sort of this like instrumental use value of the social that the political has, right? And what people bandy about as the social. And it's very important, I think, that there's a nominal social being thrown around here, that it's not society itself that doesn't exist. It's so the way people appeal to society. What do people mean when they say society or the social? There's something to be skeptical of when you see someone using this as a floating signifier for virtue, considering, you know, we live in a mode of production.
1: We, we live in a mode of production, which is the only mode of production which could create the basis for communist social relations. I mean, it's it seems like to accept what Baudrillard is saying is to I mean, he says it himself, if there's anything we should preserve of Marx. I, I mean, I think this is a venture outside of Marx's conception of capitalism.
2: Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, he completely misreads Marx like 100 percent. But it's interesting to read on its own terms, I guess.
0: Look, the misreading of Marx was the historically alive reading of Marx at the time. Very That's true. It's it's nothing special to him. Is his target really Marx or is it all the people that follow him and you know put up banners at his face?
2: Because like his original like early Marxist texts were about basically like consumerism. It seemed right. really like conceptualize these things in like very moral terms, almost like in ways that Marx didn't, probably because he was trying to account for like the new sort of like turn in consumer society. But he was never like a very good Marxist. So towards the beginning of the book where he's talking about the
0: weird ideologization of use value as being something extraordinarily moral and wholesome. How like exchange value is something supposedly rational. Where you know he sees exchange value as this like bizarre rational force that makes farces of everything, and this kind of insistence on the morality of use value as sort of as a sort of like reactionary bugaboo, essentially something that like very much misses the point to the point that like their whole concept of like use utility, becomes just warped and distorted by like exchange value. <laughs> he makes a, a point that's parallel to something. Alf Haben says about the Soviet Union where like they have some like deformed law of value. He basically calls socialism
1: that in so many words. The denial that capitalism would have a a social. I think you can translate some of what he's saying about the ways political actors use this idea of the social. It, It kind of does go back to Marx in the sense that Marx himself was saying there is no unified one social interest that the state can represent in the political sphere under capitalism. But that's what the mystique of the political sphere is, is that you're going to have this one apparatus that we put our everyday lives aside, you know, where all of the capitalism stuff takes place. And then you go into this representative or whatever kind of political system you have, really. And that's where you talk about these all of social kind of decisions. And so there is some value to what he says about the social, I think, if you bracket it in those terms. But if you don't, I I see a certain anti-sociality that is very common to the kind of Frankfurt School French types like Marcuse and people like that too, who are analyzing things like the Society of the Spectacle or Adorno with mass consumerism, though less so with Adorno. But the emphasis on consumerism seems to hold people in contempt and to view people as bought into things in a way that I don't think they really are. Like, for example, if you look at something like a Marvel movie, right? You would think that, oh, we're at the peak of the simulation. But I think for most people outside of the fandoms and stuff, that's not like become a new religion for them, much as movies try to become a new civil religion. And J.J. Abrams is going to tell us all about friendship or whatever. But that isn't really what has happened. I think for the average person, something like Avengers is more like a glorified lights show. It sold well and had great audience reception. So I think that a lot of times we kind of assume like, oh, these damn popcorn Americans and their big sodas, like as if people have no self-awareness or irony, like, you know, oh, they're just watching The Bachelor. Like, I'm pretty sure most people who watch reality TV know that it's trash and are getting a kick out of that. Yeah, I think he's kind I, of I, gone beyond guess, sincerity of consumerism in the era he's talking about, if it was ever there.
0: Would that be news to Baudrillard? Like, because you're right, is that there's an antisocial element to this? There's no question about it. But is it really that you know uh, the damn kids and their popcorn? I think he's kind of celebrating this weird simulation that we. Yeah, can, I, we I suppose that
1: meant more the general tradition that he's coming out of is what I was elaborating on.
0: This is edging. You know, he's being an lord. He's like, you know what? Actually, fuck socialism. Let's eat popcorn and watch the Avengers.
2: I mean, on some level, he's basically just talking about the inability to like grasp the object or whatever. Like there's a reason that sociology is like a very soft science. You know, or the social mm-hmm. sciences are yeah. like a soft science. Like it's such an exceedingly complex and regressive subject that you can never really fully understand it. And that's why there are, you know, there's so many like mutually conflicting like understandings of like where things stand or where things are headed or what the masses really want or they don't want from any number of directions, left, right or whatever. Because to encapsulate something like as complex as human society as like a totality, it's it's always going to elude your grasp completely because you don't have the instruments or the like capacity to fully understand it. Right? There is like definitely like, like an empirical basis to that. Yeah, there's a part before that where he just goes, the Communist Party itself, like the real, like the social, is still what it is, but it's probably no longer any more than that. Which is to say that it is exhausting itself into its own resemblance hyper. Maybe stepping back and just kind of looking at like the political situation like in France at the time, like I was kind of saying earlier, uh, the Communist Party there was kind of between a and you know even the Socialists were kind of between a rock and the hard place because like France existed within that Western Bloc and because like the working class in France was probably not prepared to you know go like the Spartan route and basically go over to like the Eastern Bloc and switch sides in the Cold War. And so any, like, leftist thing governing in power there basically just has to go cut the best deal they can. This is, like, a thing we haven't gotten out of. And there's a section later where he kind of says something where he goes, "Um, The right also claims to represent deep values, but through simple tradition and legitimacy, not through the moral and historic decree of reason. This arbitrariness is how the right, even if it makes appeal to moral values, finds the immorality to govern, whereas the left, because it appeals to true morality... Uh, that which defies the course of history toward the good and happiness is constantly forced to exonerate itself from being in power and to sacrifice itself as it has often done on the altar of the right. The left's very divinity prevents it from governing with all the means at its disposal. And in contradistinction to the right, the profound morality of the left is what creates an obstacle to the exercise of power, despite all the immoral stratagems to which it too must avail itself. And so yeah, there does seem mm. to be this problem where like the left Or at least the far left is not able to maintain legitimacy if it wins governorship because it has to manage capitalism, basically. Although, ironically, I feel like Bernie Sanders might actually have had this problem less in the United States because it seems like you can do something more like that if you are the imperial hegemon, but you would have to probably maintain that imperialism.
0: Yeah, this is definitely directed at the far left because, as we know, this is the set of elections that really make the Socialist Party in France like a national player and the torch is passed
1: from from the PCF to the Democrats to an extent, though. I mean, we had an earlier conversation about how it always seems like the Democrats and the Democrats are doing what they it seems like doing what they think will let them win, though there's some ambiguity there. But regardless of whether they want to win or not, I mean, the fact that that's even a question, right, whether Mm -hmm. the Democrats want to win or not shows that the center left shares this problem of, I don't know if it comes down to to dedication to principles above all else or, or something, but it definitely shares this problem of, even when it's in government, it is terrified to implement its program. I mean, for the center left, it's really there not to implement its program. And you see this over and over again.
0: The read here is a little different because the far left is the one with the programmatic kind of, listen, we have a program and we have no will. We have no political will. We actually secretly don't want to win. We're terrified of power. Please don't make us. And when there is a possibility of victory, Baudrillard is describing people being like, yeah, well, let's have a laugh. Let's put you up and watch you fail. But um, ultimately, the book talks about, you know, with the victory of Mitterrand, like Beaujard describes this ecstatic socialism. I think that probably the best way to understand what he means by socialism there is actually he means neoliberalism, like the system being set
2: up by the socialists. (laughs) One thing he does get right is that they did fundamentally misread the situation they were in. You see it, you know, I'm as subject to it as anybody. You see the left kind of gets like extra excited, maybe beyond what their actual capacities are like a certain situation, because, you know, you're just so thirsty to get some kind of win in your sails. The way some people were talking at the time, you would have thought like Mitterrand winning was like the last stanza of the Internationale. It was what we worked for, you know, it's what we grinded for all those years when really it was more just they were the other guy on the ballot. Hey, let's try this and see what happens. You know, it was the fucking 80s. Like That was the conditions they had to work within.
1: I mean, we can remember in our own lifetimes the whole it's happening lunacy around Syriza. Oh. I mean, Jacobin was convinced that we would be fully automated Euro communism by next year. Right. I mean, that was a spectacular disaster.
2: It's a very similar kind of thing, although maybe the stakes were a little bit higher in that situation. I remember hearing like polls in Greece after the time where people weren't even that mad at Syriza because it's like, hey, they had to cut some kind of deal. You know, they seemed like they tried. <laughs> Yeah, it is a problem for the far left that really wants to transform things.
0: The the bit about Althusser and like Althusser's mystifying like de-Stalinized Stalinism and his need of like opposing the party from the militant and like his line basically that like the Communist Party does for French society what Althusser does for the Communist Party. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it just describes so accurately the way that this, like, critical Stalinist tradition that comes out of Altusser never sufficiently breaks with the Stalinism. There is really an embrace of the underlying relations and tenets. But, you know, with this, like, you know, critical, like, air about it, I don't know. I mean, I guess Khrushchev doesn't exactly posture with a pipe, more with an ear of corn. Ultimately, like, the impulse towards, well, I'm not one of those Stalinists like, that appears in its most erudite and pretentious form in Althusser, (laughs) which is something I really enjoyed watching him skewer, because, you know, for the most part, post-structuralism, right, the structuralism that was really important beyond, like, the initial stuff from Levi-Strauss and the stuff about language and that kind of shit, you know, Althusser, he's the structural Marxist, you know, like the one that, you know, makes uh, an attempted scientific theory out. Generally speaking, yeah, post-structuralism is, is especially on the left, is running throughout Althusser, And it was really fun to read something that, like, really violently tries to depart from that. Like, and really just tries to stab at it. And ultimately, of course, we still have the same kind of, like, frog wizard gibberish. But um, it's coming from that more, like, vitalist kind of postmodern French tradition where this person
2: is clearly on drugs I was just going to say to the listener, you do not need to actually read this. Uh, (laughs) There's a part of me that kind of enjoys returning to this guy from time to time because I do agree with that kind of like sense of like sympathy to like Baudrillard basically just, yeah, watching everything go increasingly insane. And there seem to be like these weird feedback loops. He's a companion figure, kind of the same way Nietzsche is, even if there's like, you know, kind of a problematic figure.
1: I mean, if you're going to read this, maybe microdose first or something like that. Like, I think you'll want to... uh, (laughs) You know, I, I think for most 70s and 80s European theory, if it didn't come directly out of people doing acid, um, it, it is descended from theorists that did a lot of LSD. And so we should we should really keep in context that certain points that might even be really interesting are going to be expressed when you're reading these kinds of works in a very, at times, silly way. I think that's yeah. pretty common to a lot of the European theory of that couple of decades. And that has to do with the influence of, you know, the counterculture and stuff like that, I suppose.
0: It's fun. I guess more than it's fun. It was like prescient for its time. And I guess I forgive the sloppiness and some of the, frankly, conservatism. Like, I wouldn't say that he's a conservative, but there's a a real sense of like deflated horizons here that yeah. he's just historically correct about. You know, when he says the Soviet Union exporting strategy was the biggest like strategic simulation of all, because after a certain point, the Soviet Union was literally exporting a counter revolutionary strategy, like a please don't do revolution strategy and was doing shades of this for a long time. But at a certain point, you know, that became literalized. Clearly a party at that level, you know, is, it's like removed its reason for being. You know, I'm, I'm not really sure on what the right thing to do is as with communist organization. You know, a lot of the divine left, you know, one of the first reasons I wanted to read it is that it sort of reads as a skewering of the strategy of patience where you're building up institutions. You're afraid of like getting your mandate before all the eggs are in order for the revolution. It spoke to a lot of my doubts about the centrist strategy and what a worst case scenario would look like.
2: What's crazy is like didn't kind of didn't really have a choice like i think the big problem that they had was like a fundamental like misreading of like the like historical moment they were in it wasn't so much the strategy of patience it was just like kind of like shitty like objective circumstances that they were in like the strategy of patience could work in other circumstances will we ever see circumstances like that again who knows you know
0: right but there's just not that many times that the strategy of patience is actually implemented
2: Like there's,
0: there's usually a collapsing to the right or to the left. It's really, you know, unique moments in history where it's tried. I would have to do more study to really get a grip of that. But so much of what Baudrillard is saying seems like the worst case scenario of trying to build up institutions in the society. Representation becomes like this weird end to itself and your political apparatus is just for, you know, keep people busy.
2: They seem to come up with like Euro communism almost as like a placeholder for like the mm. the former kind of like global strategy that they had, had that wasn't working part of what like the strategy of patient like historically it kind of presumed like it was like an international context where all these dominoes in Europe, which was then the imperialist core, the working class would kind of take power around the same time or one place and it would lead to other places. You know, Lenin's like weakest link in the chain kind of thing. It wasn't just like, how are we going to have the presidency in France? Well, like Thatcher is running England and there's two Germanys and one of them has like more power in terms of like the European currency markets and we're kind of, we're no longer like the imperial like global hegemon that you can just grab resources from the third world, like all that's gone. Like they're basically second fiddle to like bigger fish that are around them, which I think probably sort of explains like why like Mitterrand kind of came around and became so enthusiastic about the European Union as a concept. But anyway.
1: What it even means to try and do Marxist politics seems to be very different in times like ours than in past times, because these parties that were formed around Marxist ideas, I mean, they came out of situations with a global militant working class that had a workers' movement behind it or was funneling its energies into a workers' movement, you could say. And so what they were relating to was not abstract in this they in like and and not as short term a goal either, because they were compelled by the working class even to radicalize further and to push towards something real. And obviously there's deviations that take place. You know, it sort of introduces this question, I guess, that we have in anti-politics that's basically whether, you know, Marx or Marxism, or what have you, whether socialism is about a politics to end politics, or a kind of social emancipation from politics through like a a kind of one conquers the other sort of relationship. And I think that one of the things that's lost in kind of the bickering on both sides, I guess, when you bring up a word as charged as anti-politics is that it's not my reading of what we should do, but I do consider stuff like the Day a possible reading of, of Marx and even something that Marx and Engels especially maybe didn't have no ambivalence about, but we're we're curious where it would go. But today, just, you know, saying, oh, we're forming a Marxist party. I mean, when you don't actually have that basis to do so, it, it, I think it looks very different in terms of you know, what it means to be organizing or what have you.
2: And that's the thing, too, because like f- especially France, like they kind of cut their deal with like the United States. I mean, I think there were points where De Gaulle was literally like basically part of the reason we went into Vietnam is because De Gaulle like threatened to go over to the Eastern Bloc if we didn't help them shore up their colonies. Like that's like a, maybe a big part of like the background about what was happening here in France, like specifically there was kind of an objectively fucked like nature of the situation. And a lot of the left in France, I think, again, I think there's aspects of being like a global empire that they kind of took for granted. And when that was gone, they thought they were still kind of playing the same game, but they weren't, you know, hence uh, rigueur, as uh, Mitterrand called it. <laughs> and so, yeah, that maybe there is an aspect of hyper reality where like the PCF is still going on without a real plan, but they're still behaving as if it's like 1919, And, you know, there's the rising tide or whatever. And now we've got these elections. So at long last, our day has come. But they're completely different, like, set of forces at work at the moment. And so that probably the more, like, historical materialist reading of the dissonance that, like, Baudrillard is looking at. He brings his sort of, like, philosophical drug deviant take on it. And then imposes all that onto this particular situation. And then uh, results in this book, which is interesting. Because, I mean, there are scattershot things in this I think you could pull from. And I enjoy like reading like provocative stuff from time to time because it, you know, it shakes you up a little bit. But like I said, you don't really need to read this.
1: (laughs) It did make us talk for two and a half hours somehow, though.
2: Well, that was that was really the main idea. I mean,
1: yeah, I knew
0: we would have a lot to say about this because, I mean, you know, it rhymes with a lot of the debates that we're having. And the fact that it does, I think, gives me more respect for this text than I would have ever ever had otherwise the fact that this corresponds to you know it's basically the period of centrism that mcnair kind of likes where it's the post-krucivite cps before euro communism this is the most kind of moribund form of it mm-hmm. and uh i don't know i couldn't help but read it that way
2: it bodes poor for the idea of like doing the strategy of patience now but at the same time we're seeing that like these kind of shortcut measures don't seem to work either And just complete spontaneism, I think, remains too indeterminate and doesn't, Mm -hmm. like, coalesce into, like, a positive force that's capable of, like, acting on society in, like, a sustained way. So there's problems with, like, all of the kind of paths forward. And as ever, it seems like we're always waiting for something new to emerge, you know. It kind of just reinforces that there really are no shortcuts as badly as we kind of need one or need some kind of juice. Getting out, like, too far in front of these things and getting more power than you're ready for, you're just being put in a position to eat shit, you know.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's like pretty fundamental to what Baudrillard thinks propels political activity is essentially setting people up to fail. I have kind of a lengthy quote here about sort of the social and political, nobody
1: minds. We love lengthy quotes here. Guys.
0: We do. The Communist Party had hoped to elude power by programming and overprogramming, and now the masses who couldn't care less about the program The contradictions and subtleties of which they despise risk bringing them to power. Power without the program. Whereas the watchword was the program against power. What a singular reversal. The situation is hardly less obscene for the Socialist Party, although it does want power. This is still according to the idealism of a program. I'm going to skip a bit. The Socialist Party also ends up on the wrong foot because the masses will elect it not for a program at all, but in order to see it in power. It's an absolute misunderstanding but that's what makes for the discreet charm of these elections real political power that all forces present avoid they are simply the executors of a program is absorbed by power as spectacle which is the only thing that the active statistical masses can distribute today we should not have any illusions they will re-elect the right at the next turn but this is not important they want spectacle signs they do not want to change society They want a good spectacle, not a good program. They do not want to be represented. They want to witness a representation. They've had enough of a destiny of representation, whatever it is. They want to enjoy the spectacle of representation. All the representatives, parties, unions use the social demand of the masses to escape politics and they have good reason to do so. Society is managed via the social. The Communist Party, apart from its cowardice, has perfectly good reasons to mistrust political power Which no longer exists, or is no longer anything but a trap of representation to trust in the everyday municipal arrangement of the social. But the masses do not understand it that way. They prefer the spectacle of politics, whether grotesque or ridiculous, to the rational management of the social. Perhaps they don't like the experience of the social. Perhaps that historical experience taken in their name and on their backs is not at all to their taste. Perhaps they don't want to be taken for the masses and compelled to assume responsibilities. Perhaps they're fed up with the real and the rational, the concrete and objective problems, even and especially their own. Perhaps they prefer the Baroque theater of the end of politics, the absurd charm of a political class that denies itself as such, according to that celebrated adage and descends into the street in an anti-theoretical gesture, flattering the masses, inviting the garbage collectors to the Jose Palace, competing in demagogic baseness. It basically goes on to say that they've gotten rid of power on purpose. They're not stupid enough to let representation, power, and responsibility be pawned off on them. Then he essentially like quotes Nietzsche saying, the more woman is woman, said Nietzsche, the more she defends herself against all forms of rights. The more the masses are masses, the more they resist all kinds of representation. And so will the silent majorities be. So like a fun deployment of Nietzsche and misogyny there. His whole point Mm -hmm. is The masses define themselves by like evading representation denies itself as such is something that's usually applied to the proletariat as a class.
1: I was going to say, it seems more like because of this disengagement with politics, different politicians have either postured as above in a technocratic way politics, or they've had to, for their own self-interest, right? They'll set out and go guns out at the rest of the political class to win an election or something like that. I mean, if you look at Donald Trump, I I thought of Trump when you were reading that passage, really that idea that when you think about the number of people who on a personal level did not like Donald Trump, but actually wanted somebody that vulgar and self-interested and egoistic, you know, all of the ways that he has his own pathologies, but they make him kind of really lash out at people that are
2: despised i think he kind of misreads the situation but there is an aspect of people also just being kind of checked out i mean i think he overreads it as like a resistance strategy but it is in a way kind of resistant you know because you always see like polls where things go one way or they go another and it never really like adds up to anything maybe you can see like trends over time but i think one thing he does get right at least if you use this to look at like american presidential politics there definitely is like an aspect of novelty that's craved because if you look back, like, every election, maybe since Reagan, a lot of it does seem to predicate on, like, who would be more interesting to see be president if I was, like, watching this from, like, a spaceship as, like, a TV show.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Right?
2: Because it's like, yeah, we'll, put, we'll do the actor. And then I guess, like, Bush would probably be an acceptance to that. But then you have, like, Clinton. Like, who's this guy? This, you know, this is, this is an interesting vision. W, it's like, yeah, let's see what this guy's like. Obama, same thing. Like, hey, let's try a black guy. See how that goes. And then with Trump, yeah, exactly. It's like, LOL. Like, let's make the reality guy president. That's kind of his postmodern reading on everything has been so completely subsumed to, like, simulation and spectacle. It's also true that he uses, like, the term spectacle so much because he usually more defaults to, like, his own epistemologically oriented right. reading. Right,
0: simulation. And I think he gets into this, like, later in the book. It's probably, like, one of the only parts besides uh, socialism as neoliberalism, that I actually thought was like really interesting in the latter half of the book. He kind of periodizes the rise of spectacle and then simulation. The thing that's special and distinguishing about simulation is that it encourages participation. A spectacle is something you kick back and watch with a few beers, but a simulation is something you strap on like a VR helmet and get into. You know, you feel like you're, piloting it even though it's playing you
2: I will say this though in that he was objectively wrong though about the right getting it on the next turn like I think Mitterrand stayed in power till like the late 80s early 90s whatever he was doing it was it worked for him for a while
1: there is an underestimation here of how much the political sphere can often default left and left in the sense we'd probably call reformist but left nonetheless There's the universal horror at things like Trump among the political class, even among the right. I guess the center left has kind of won out in terms of what the usual default programmatic view is. Um,
0: Sure, but I don't think he's really underselling that. Like he calls the thing that is like happening with the whole political class socialism. If we're going to interpret that as neoliberalism, I mean, I think that really
1: makes sense.
2: Right, like they're they're, yeah. they're
1: they're really undertaking a kind of deepening of their collectivization as a political class.
2: The thing is, like, why well, he does he call do it socialism? Of, though?
1: He calls
0: it socialism because I'm not sure why he does in the early part. I think it has to do with the leveraging of the social and using the social as a crutch because you know he basically sees the social and the political as. Not really as two things, but as part of one kind of like big imploded, non-dialectical because there's no progress in it, sort of like bad conversation, kind of bad opposition. Later on, he calls it socialism because the French socialists implement it.
2: Oh, I see. So he's basically just trolling.
0: But it is the vision of the Socialist Party. You know, it's like the communists refuse to implement their vision, essentially. They'll lay out their vision. They're terrified of actually having to implement it. They probably couldn't. But, you know, the socialists, on the other hand, this is socialism, guys.
2: That's, like, the problem, though. There is, like, a rational truth to there is this kind of, like, divine aspect of the left where you got a lot of people who aren't willing to get their hands dirty. But the other thing is, like, I think the right is kind of playing with house money in a way that, like, at least the far left isn't. Like oh, it, my like God. It, yeah. It, is, it isn't just, like, the right's, like, will to power that allows them to lean into things and, like, govern, uh, you know, in the name of capital, like, more effectively not just that the left needs more of like a will to power although it kind of does in some respects there's a bigger picture here that he sort of doesn't really ever there's there's a
1: lot of people on the left who would gladly like murder children if it meant that you know their malice sectlet could become in charge of the state
0: i don't think that that's what jake means though because i agree with you and i wouldn't phrase it that way jake people have like tremendous will to power but it's not like a disciplined form that a political project is possible under it's like wild and out craven, it's always sunny in Philadelphia level self-defeating will to power.
2: But it also just isn't the right's like will to power that enables it.
0: Yeah, that's something special about the left in Voegelard's point of view is that look, everyone is going to fall flat on their face. Everyone is stupid. But like the far left, they're even worse at this. They're like far worse at this than the center left and the right.
1: Yeah, I think it's good to include the center left in that in that analysis at least because the right is in decline. Even when you look at the social bases that center-right political parties typically draw on, there is an increased liberalization among those groups. Uh, whether it's even young evangelicals have more progressive social views than older ones, and you you see this this dynamic emerging where the right in its old twentieth century sense is now obsolete and. You know, people who are ahead of the curve, like Tucker Carlson, are kind of trying to figure out from a right wing perspective or a conservative perspective, how to adapt to this kind of change. But there really is a after the Cold War, I would say the center right kind of loses its reason for being in a lot of ways once the Soviet Union is gone. And it's like, all right, well, if being left doesn't have to mean fucking with capitalism or even doing Keynesianism, then like, I guess we can just be center left then. As a political class, like, that's fine. And so, I mean, in some ways that is probably, in terms of the people you're talking about who have a house stacked bet, Jake, I think we agree in the sense that a lot of the people I'm calling center left, the, that is to the right of you as a leftist on the political spectrum.
0: But I don't, I don't really think that's what Jake means. Like, Jake's right here.
1: I'm just saying that, you know, I'm not completely trying to counter the point that there are right-wing people who have a, an advantage in terms of uh, getting to state power over the far left i'm i'm simply stating that what right wing has to look like has also shifted left
2: like liberal in what sense because like they're liberal in the sense that they want to like basically restore like laissez faire like gilded age like free capitalism
1: in the social issues sense the kind of everyday You know, the majority of uh, West Virginia now supports gay marriage. I don't think that we should underrate those kinds of indicators in terms of what's happening to conservative social bases. And I'm also thinking too, if you look at you know the sacred ideological principles of the right, you know, you can look at the ballooning deficit, you can look at willingness to do weird things. That are ideologically scrambled, like prison reform, or can you can look at their current signing off on massive state intervention in the economy, and it, it becomes clear that the right has had to realign to liberalism in in so many different ways. Hard to give one answer.
2: I mean, no, like I mean, okay, yeah, they they've come around on gay marriage, but if they're still tied to like the American like nationalist project and, like, the attendant imperialism that goes with it.
1: Well, isn't the center-left, too? I mean, that doesn't seem defining of the...
2: That's, like, how things have shifted over the years, that, like, the center-left is considered the left, you know what I mean? Like, like that's part of, like, the overall, like, rightward like like like, trajectory of things. It
1: seems like conservatives today are actually less aligned with the imperial project in a certain sense because they're much more dedicated to isolationism, which, in practice reduces the united states on the world stage in programs like nato things like that certainly it doesn't make them anti-imperialist
2: it's it's all for self-interested reasons yeah, okay like yeah they've they've come around on gay marriage and stuff like that but my point is if like, they still engage like in massive voter suppression designed to basically shore up like the r- shifting demographics like racially right and yeah there's always been like the paleocon and libertarian element that were formally against like american imperialism but Are they really serious about it? Like, I don't think so.
1: The Trump administration has been a reduction of America on the world stage.
2: I mean, relatively, but they're also doing shit like hijacking PPE, like on the fucking high seas and pivoting like against China. And like, it's still very much like an imperialist ideology, even if, you know, Trump personally wants to get out of like Iraq and Afghanistan.
0: I feel like we're downplaying the value of the notion of the center, like there being, you know, like a core to being part of this political class or whatever, to being loyal to the state, you know, so much of what left and right have done in the American context has been in service to this state. We've had a very narrow spectrum for some time. And this whole book is being written in a place that has a relatively important communist party.
2: The other thing is too, like we also live in a country where, like the right is also still very much tied to oil. Which, you know, basically could end up, like, collapsing civilization. So if we're not, like, in an extreme right-wing, like, situation, like, I don't know, like, what would be. I think that's a bit of a stretch because when you look at even what oil
1: companies are looking to do, there is fear about the carbon bubble. And so if anything, what they want to do is is kind of provide kind of a bullshit eco market solution. But they even the oil companies aren't that dedicated to oil in the sense that they'll try and make as
2: much money. No, it's around. But it's it's finance capital that's more driving this. I've heard things about oil companies like wanting to invest more green infrastructure. But. It's harder to rate financing because everyone like finance wants like instant returns, you know, quarterly returns. That's why everything is so exceedingly cannibalistic. But like the Republican Party and like the right doesn't seem to have any particular desire to discipline markets or all these market actors in any meaningful way. You know, they, they believe that like the market is the mechanism for freedom.
1: Right. Whereas the center left wants to put on a show of pretending that they disciplined the market
2: at very least. I mean, yeah, maybe, I
1: mean, or some bullshit that won't even go close to far enough in terms of right. the seriousness of global warming.
2: Right. But the point is the fact that that's even where they're at, like, indicates, like, the fact that there almost is really no meaningful left in the United States. Yeah. It's you I know, mean, I, I mean, it's that, difficult with these
1: terms left and right, and I mean that speaks to how. I don't think it's bad faith on either of our parts, but the way we've had to kind of explain our definitions so much during this conversation has to do, you know, we are theory heads and we're going to have our own esoteric definitions of everything. And that's like a mutually guilty kind of thing. But I think more importantly is the scrambling of left and right. And the way that these, you know, just calling somebody a leftist or a rightist doesn't really tell you that much about their material role in history because these things are so detached. And, you know, the left not having its social basis anymore leads it to kind of just have a lot of conversations out in the abstract ether, there's nothing to kind of tether it to reality. Whereas even something like the S Day had the workers movement to kind of keep it relevant and thinking about what was going on in the world. And so it, it becomes this thing where, you know, what left and right even mean is not I'm not saying there's no distinction or that there's, no reason to use the terms ever when you're talking about politics, but they've certainly blurred. And there's definitely an ideological scramble going on. And it means that there are actually multiple useful definitions, not just the uselessness. It's almost like the uselessness also means that there are multiple useful definitions, because these are still historical reference that have in terms of the legacies we're talking about, too.
2: It's a binary opposition and it's a spectrum. right? And no framework can really encompass everything. But, you know, I think it is fairly useful. I'm suspicious of this, like, I'm above left and right stuff because like, it's not necessarily a virtue, you know. Like, fascism is syncretic, right? That's not like a feather in its cap or whatever. <laughs> fascism
1: is very unabashedly and proudly political state-oriented in a way which complicates that. I, I really think it's more important to be against than, you know, condescendingly above. But, you know, being against left and right politics you don't get there by smashing the two together and finding the middle ground. I think it's more that because of that degeneration and political breakdown that is kind of happening on a separate axis, you see a certain kind of derangement where the political class is. I mean, cartelizing is one of the things when I we were talking earlier about, you know, another way that the political class is socialist now in the neoliberal sense is that they have become more cartelized, which means basically the parties look more similar to each other than ever, rather than, you know, during the era of the mass party, parties presented themselves as representing different social blocks against other embedded interests. And now it's more like this kind of harmonious, very similar policy platform kind of mutually assured interests. You know, I mean, even we were having the debate earlier about whether the Democrats want to win a political election. I mean, they're 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 so close now.
0: That's the thing that ultimately like drives home the utility of words like left and right is that this is a book written about the French Communist Party in the 80s. And we look to the relative left of in our like electoral spectrum, none of us would consider the Democrats party left. But if you're thinking in terms of like the emergent options on the ballot. You have, you know, Democrats on the left, Republicans on the right. The fact that there's any resemblance at all is pretty incredible.
2: If you made a list of indicators of like what direction things are going to have to head in order to have a livable and like sane society in like the 21st century, I think you would end up closer to the left than you would to the right in terms of just the generalized issues. I mean, maybe there's a few things like, I don't know, like using nuclear power that many leftists would, would scoff at. But I think overall, like if you try and like I don't know, exit front and be like against, I'm against all of it. Like, are you really though? Because like I would bet like if you just sat down like issue for issue, you'd probably end up. You know, you see what I'm saying? Personally, I don't think that's the case.
1: I mean, my experience has been that I've actually you know since I've come to the perspective I have now that I actually have been disagreeing with leftists on a lot of things and things that are considered kind of common cause without really coming at it from a reactionary or whatever perspective, but just really thinking that, you know, the, some of the fundamental basis of the conversations is all askew. And so even stuff like the Green New Deal, I mean, I, I think would be policy smoke and mirrors, whereas I think even most communists are like, oh, the Green New Deal, step in the right direction. Um, That's unimplementable. Are you opposed to the Green New Deal if it came I mean, up? In terms of what a Green New Deal being done by a state would look like, there's no good answer you know and and so in a really existing state you know i i'm not even going to entertain illusions where an efficient social management of climate change comes out of these technocratic state bureaucrats i mean i just don't i don't think that's ever going to happen and so it's i think a lot of times our ability to envision a policy alternative within the context of politics actually unconsciously allows us to rationalize upholding the whole structure because what we're doing is you know I'm not going to overturn this thing because if you and I even think about this in terms of the lockdowns right like the the way the quarantines have been done which in my opinion you're looking at something like the entire political class left and right decided to pour all of our resources into these generalized lockdowns rather than targeted interventions to protect the vulnerable and now you've got a situation where covid-19 is running rampant through nursing homes. There, do you think the capitalist state could carry plan, out the latter? There wasn't even a plan to isolate care workers who tested positive for COVID-19. And there wasn't even a plan to... Cuomo even you know, just said, oh, I don't know when they asked him, but they were just sending COVID positive patients back to nursing homes. And so sure. we've clearly spent all of this time pouring our resources into... But it's like, because leftists see a people's quarantine as some abstract hypothetical possibility, they're able to rationalize supporting what the state's actually going to do, which is this dead weight on society that actually demobilizes us from dealing with the virus in a humane and and satisfactory way. Um, because- I mean, you know, Tons if you of people don't- who aren't at risk of dying from it, you know, any more than they're at risk of dying from a lot of other common illnesses are kept at home and you have nothing really being done for the vulnerable. and
0: Yeah, but that's not really on the table. Nothing for the vulnerable is on the table. It's never been. Basically, the, the first response to this was denial. They never had any you know,
1: humane. Right. But the, all, the, all the economic plans that they had come up with just basically went out the window and it became, all right, lock everything down. And the left has but, ended up basically supporting the way that's being done because they can imagine, you know, off oh, we just push for this, like it'll be done in a better way. And I mean, the, I can tell you why I
0: support it. It has nothing to do with an imaginary scenario.
2: If you think the capitalist state can't carry out anything anyway, like why would you think that they could actually like enforce like an elderly means-tested quarantine? Like why is that the well, ultra- why it, do- not like why I just
1: I, I don't actually advocate for that in the sense that I I think it's it's more the contradiction that we're not doing that is revelatory than I think it's going to happen, right? And that's why I actually that's what I was really saying is that's why I don't, you know, wouldn't say I support the lockdowns, even though I'm actually not of the opinion that all we have to do is just restart the economy and everything's fine. I think there has to be a a real response, a targeted intervention, that kind of thing. But it's something we don't have the tools to do. And by pretending that we do, we end up just granting legitimacy to something that's going to be implemented in a very antisocial and disciplinary way that it's going to happen whether people on the internet you know, on the left, like the very way you frame this, I think it would be more important for critical intellectuals to look at where the fault lines of this thing that's going to happen anyway, are in the abstract, you can have alternative ways of doing it. And so I brought up my alternative way of doing it, but,
2: but that very act reifies that. that alternative policy thing and the capitalist state in that it seems to imply that the capitalist state can do that.
0: Right. And it's a reassertion of the reality principle. It's like, and this is what Baudrillard says about basically having a program. There's a lot of like endnotes in this, right? He talks about the class limit, but he also talks about the absurdity of a program. In his mind, critique is only supposed to critique, it's supposed to be ideology critique. It's supposed to, you know, attack the reality principle at work, an ideology or whatever. Like the very moment that you start postulating something alternative. Even though he's like lambasting the socialist movement and the proletariat in its class form for not really putting something forward. Later in the book, he says, you know, this is the means by which you come back to reasserting the reality principle. It's through this process.
2: A targeted like means tested quarantine was not like a capitulation of politics. They probably just looked at how you would do that and realized it would probably be more complicated and difficult to do than even a generalized lockdown
1: yeah, we put a man on the moon, but you had different fucking parts of the political class that just wanted to show as serious a response as possible. And that looks like this. And it looks like taking the lead of China, which obviously set the most authoritarian precedent possible for how to handle this. And so there's this kind of mutual panic, I would say that that prevents them from being able to at least give a more rational response. And I mean, there's obviously a spectrum, right? There's plenty of countries in, in Asia, for example, that didn't lock down, that kept schools open. Just little obvious stuff, like we don't even have temperature checks at nursing home doors let alone you know if all the stuff about testing for example that they bring up so they'll bring up oh we need testing and yes they'll take things that would be part of a strategy that would help deal with things right but it's just this abstract we need to test the population thing whereas couldn't we be pouring those tests since there's that asymptomatic period into nursing homes if that's
2: who's vulnerable if
1: we're finding that
2: if if they don't
1: are coming out of there why aren't we focused on that why are we just letting them die
2: it's they're just they're, because they're struggling to set up supply lines because there's there are bottlenecks in productive capacity like it's hard to just find the actual like physical equipment no, because but they're
1: saying they want tests i mean so they can implement this strategy of matched, like generalized no distinction rather than actually using a targeted epidemiological tool in smart ways
2: but you have to get the temperature checking machines, though. And there's like a limit on those. If you're a nursing
1: home, you're going to have a thermometer.
0: I don't think it's the supply lines that put a limit on this implementation. I just think the state doesn't like really give a shit. And well, there's you know, that too. capitalist state is not going to do that. Uh, but bourgeois state, I should say, because as the crisis, you know, really points out that there is a contradiction between, you know, individual capital and even sometimes bourgeoisie as a class. And, you know, it's state that has its best interests in mind. I mean, listen, the lockdowns we got are, you know, it's not really that absurd in the U.S. The thing that was absurd in the U.S. is how late it came. Right. Because a lot of this stuff is like a shelter in place order that doesn't have like a Modi like curfew or, you know, legal penalties, even like you see in Germany for like meeting up or something. For the drones like,
1: harassing people.
0: Yeah. A lot of the most extreme stuff isn't really here. And you could say that we underreacted, if anything.
1: I would say that if you look at where policing is going to be variant, I think that people who support the lockdowns, people who kind of without question support the lockdowns, because it does actually have broad social support in a lot of ways. They have been able to convince people that it's necessary. But if you look at where it's kind of solidly come out of in the middle class, you know, initially making the demand, for that cessation of labor, or at least that work from home order, you see a lot of people who are going to have a more comfortable experience of it, where the police kind of seem like friends. But if you're in Newark, for example, there's plenty of reports that people are just getting ticketed for going out on the sidewalk. And so because the state is going to be racist, I mean, the left can see that this is why you don't support gun control laws, right? Because if you actually implemented it in the US state, It's going to be the most racist thing ever. Well, I mean, if you look at lockdowns, actually, there's all sorts of ways that it's authoritarian for the working class in terms of its enforcement here, even. And
2: then laissez faire for the middle class. Like the whole thing is so like chaotic in terms of how it's implemented. It was never going to be even enough because, you know, probably we just have like a federated system. But I don't know, this is getting in the weeds because it's like you're positing like some kind of alternative way that capitalism could have managed this potentially. The thing is, I don't think the herd immunity strategy was ever serious because if you think about it, what it would take to actually implement that once they probably like thought it through for more than a few seconds, they realized it wasn't workable and they felt well, like they had to is do something.
1: What came out of the UK state health bureaucracy at first and Johnson was able to kind of <laughs> watch dance of things and go like these technocrats came up with it and you see it in places like Sweden. And I don't think it's actually borne out whether they're going to have, you know, a kind of ridiculously higher mortality rate than countries that have done more generalized efforts, but even they don't do these targeted interventions and When I'm positing this alternative way of doing it, I'm saying the very impossibility of what would be my kind of ideal policy program to implement in the capitalist context is why I don't throw in support. Just like why I don't think leftists who think that, oh, we should do this with a really strong UBI and we should do this with a really strong unemployment should be unquestioning about the civil liberties abuse going on right now simply because they can imagine a way that it could be done that's not like this. There's this idea that you're saying even my version of it couldn't work, right? But then people will end up supporting the lockdown because they're like, well, my version of the lockdown doesn't include that.
0: That's not why most people support it. They support it because it's there and it's an answer. That's what it is, is that none of these other things exist. And- if there's any like critique that I could make of this whole way of reasoning about the political and how, oh, you know, the political has fallen away, you know, power has been abolished, you know, the masses have done away with power, is that, you know, when push comes to shove, when there's a Hobbesian situation and survival's on the line, I mean, who gets to call the shots? It's a state. It's not actually capital individually or collectively. I think this should be revelatory for a lot of people's political reality. You know,
1: I agree with that. Yeah.
0: You actually get like a conflict between capital and the state and the state is in the United States, especially caught asleep on the job, you know, and then when it does respond, it's kind of weak tea, you know, it's not enough, but even so, even though it's not enough, even though power is sclerotic, when there's a Hobbesian situation, in comes the state, in comes power. This stuff isn't really gone. Maybe the masses are being a bunch of girls by, like, avoiding representation, and maybe we should appreciate their seduction, as Baudrillard no doubt does, as opposed to this, you know, cucked representation or something. But all the same, like, not participating in power, you know, leaving power to the professionals and laughing at them as they fall over themselves, still at the end of the day, leaves us in these crisis moments with professionals with their hands on the leverage of power. And that's the only time they can really act. You know, when I think of neoliberalism, even though there is something about like weird desocialized political bases for these things. Desocialized base is a phrase that he uses. That this isn't like the old political bases that actually had roots in society. This is something else. You still do have like actors with quite a bit of power that can change things around, that can change the economy. That can change, you know, at least downstream from the economy, society to an important extent.
1: I would counter that by stating that this is really only the beginning of this outbreak. And there are often moments of temporary consolidation behind politics that foreshadow even further derangements and deepenings of its inability to govern. Of course, under capitalism until the proletariat's conquest of the state, there is going to be a state and it is going to have that claim that it makes, even though it's often ineffectual in practice. It's going to make that claim to all of social decision-making and state of exception moment activity and stuff like that. But I do think we've seen things like nine bear out that, you know, nine 11, that's a huge injection of social conflict or of violence into the social in a way that should have shored up politics for a very long time. But even that crisis and the war on terror that spun out of it only gave them about 10 years. And so if there is a temporary coronavirus consolidation of going along, I think that when we see the rubble after, that it will only deepen their legitimacy crisis. And I agree that it's a slow secular process. And so it's only really over time and there will be exceptions. But I do think when you look at it, it's actually done more to stunt them than, well, when you look at the post-war order and when politics was stable, or you look at the kind of energy that was in politics and invested in political power when you had World War I and World War II, where states just wiped out their populations, what we're looking at today is a far weaker state that has more difficulty making new compacts with society and that doesn't mean that the state has been abolished right and it's still going to do awful cruel things that states do but i do think it's been impeded
0: it's been impeded to an extent but what did the political class have to do to destroy the goodwill gained in 911 you know and 911 i would be remiss if i didn't you know mention baudrillard's advocacy of terrorism as the only thing that can interrupt the mass and interrupt the hegemonic. So even he could appreciate the singularity of terror. But, you know, what did the political class have to do to bankrupt its goodwill? It had to start, like, two wars, each of which have, you know, body counts in, like, the hundreds of thousands. There's something about that that doesn't, you know, scream, like, end of state power. There is a sclerotic, thrashing, ridiculous element to it. But when it gets these, like, Hobbesian moments and these like injections of legitimacy it continues to cause damage it remains to be seen how far overplayed their hand will be here because if you're living in you know germany if you're living in china if you're living in like hungary okay you want to talk about overreach those are the places that i would be looking for something like disastrous overreach with inevitable blowback but here i don't know if overreach is really what's going on if anything, right. considering the seriousness of what we're dealing with, we vastly underreacted. We waited a long time to but start doing think- anything about it and to start taking it seriously.
2: I
1: don't and think like- public health measures actually take it seriously, though.
2: Well, there's been a denialism at work, like I said, like in right. in places where like the state can still like discipline the economy in a way because they haven't completely like drunk their own Kool-Aid about like capitalism. Like you can respond to these things a lot more rapidly. Like, you know, like look at Vietnam, right? Like Vietnam, I think I'm like the sixth person. They started instituting like shutdowns and they haven't had a single death from this. States that are more willing to basically violate like the norms of like market society and like neoliberalism can react to these things more rapidly than here yeah. where they, they basically prevaricated on everything until they were absolutely forced to do something. And there is some state overreach. I know they had passed some bill in the midst of this, to like remove end to end encryption. So there will be like some power grab aspects that have nothing to do with this. I can't like, they, like, the like they do with every single crisis. So there is kind of like an over slash under thing happening at the same time. I just don't see the underreaction when I can't go to a state park, right. Or with a mask on, but that's a very self-centered way of looking at it. I mean,
1: I, I don't think that's self-centered at all. I, I think it's actually, you can't go to a state park. Like, is that what's happening in Jersey? No, all of our state parks are shut down. Absolutely. And a lot of the national parks are shut down as well. Even Sandy Hook, which is a, a national level one. And that really I think that again, all of these attempts to be serious, to not under react or what have you have been very undermining.
0: A lot of those don't make that much sense either. A lot of them are like brute force. It's basically shoot the cat in the Stafford beer way, like We have to eliminate variety and we have to eliminate variables. And that's a dumb way of dealing with this, of course. But like, there's pretty much no other options on the table. There aren't agents to deal with this. The way that things are arranged, it's to be sure that there aren't agents to deal with these things. The state is the only thing that can act with this kind of coordination and its outcomes are dismal, sclerotic.
1: But I just see the left constantly carrying water for the way it's being done.
2: I mean I think what the left does need to do is point out basically how capitalism is like responsible for this crisis and pretty much everything that's gone wrong. Like that's right. really what's key because the fact that they decided to do just in time like supply lines like on the healthcare system in the United States and like completely like de-localized production on that. The fact that we do basically have like this for-profit healthcare system that is already like deeply broken Well, they Uh, had
1: to lay off nurses because the social distancing strategy involved eliminating elective surgeries, which means the healthcare system can't be fucking financed, which means they're laying off people who just spent three weeks in COVID units. Well, there's no planning. If you had a plan, you would
2: cross train those people, you know. Another good aspect that you see, like in some places where like people came out of retirement to act on this, but because we have a for-profit system, yeah, a lot of places rather than throwing on treating this, they'll just like lay people off to cut costs. It's going to come around to absorb the impact of this instead of doing the rational thing. And again, if we had a rational system, there'd be already plenty of doctors instead of a shortage, you know, <laughs> like that's kind of what's key. And I think that's kind of why people on the left end up embracing the shutdowns because it is something. And I think that they are rightly terrified of the market economy managing this crisis
1: yeah we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place aren't we
2: there's no like virtuous
1: actors
0: here
2: there's no one that really has
0: you know everyone's best interests at heart we can't go to the one big union syndicate to have the working class you know act in its own interests like it's just not on the table
2: that's what's so terrifying, and that's the reality that we're going to have to look at because things are going to become increasingly like unstable as time goes on.
1: Right. I mean, if there's any indications from this of how the capitalist class is going to respond to fucking global warming crises, it's like, very that, blackpilling. Forget about it. It's, that's dark. I mean, in terms of the yeah, way, it's very dark. I think this is heavy-handed. I mean, at least like you can present a rationale for what's being done.
0: Pattern is is already fit where they're just like, yeah, it's not really a problem.
2: Like we saw them like prevaricate on this thing up to like the very last minute you know i mean climate change is going to be even worse that is what kind of like really terrifies me like if they can't even handle something like this immediate that is relatively containable if you do it right like get ready for eco-fascism folks it's coming yeah. some and, of the it-
1: hospitals that have done well have been large hospital systems that had the resources to pour money into this in january when they saw okay there's a cluster of pneumonia in china that's caused by coronavirus, and we don't know whether it's going to escape or not. And so these larger university healthcare systems, for example, can pour a bunch of money into preparedness for this if they perceive that it's going to be a financial fucking disaster for them. But most market actors don't really have the capital to like anticipate things in that way. And then the state really only gets involved when it's too late. By nature, you know, back to that rock in a hard place, because the state is only going to start once a lot of those targeted interventions we talked about are completely off the table. And now, like, there's no time to get testing for healthcare workers, and there's no time to do this and that and actually helpful interventions. Just shut it all the fuck down because they waited so long, too.
0: Baudrillard did a good job of explaining, you know, the time that we were entering, you know, between the coked-out gibberish. And perhaps the motivation for being on whatever he was on when he wrote this was the melancholy, like, disappearance of some kind of actor that could have done something to prevent this sort of simulacrum from rising. It's hard to imagine, like, the scales falling from the eyes and people getting all real sincere for a while, mainly because we've all experienced moments like that, like maybe like post 9-11 or something that quickly became incredibly farcical, at least post 9-11 around New York City. And even in the suburbs around New York City, there was an actual sense of sort of solidarity that wasn't like just manufactured or fake. But then very quickly, it became this like gamed farce. And I guess sort of the question is, and I guess this will really be tested by the increasing intensities of crises, not just economic, that we're going to be coming up against, ecological crises and more health crises. Is the simulation really going to give way in any meaningful sense? Like, how do we see ourselves getting out of a phase like this? Would it require the resumption of outright domination instead of hegemony management thing, you know, like a return to hard politics? Is is that what it's going to take
1: Is downside the price of progress?
0: (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is like, is there any chance that, you know, when there's like 400 million dead from climate change flooding or something, is our response really going to be that different from, you know, what you would see on like the Something Awful forum or like 4chan? Is there going to be like a renewed sense of connection to, you know, what's important? Because I would probably answer... At this point, in the negative, really? like I don't see this letting up just because we get democides. I think I mean, we would have like the world as such. It would continue in this kind of smug simulation way. Like I, I don't see that giving just because we enter into
2: a scarier period. Well, I disagree. I think if like food security was threatened for a lot of people, I mean, basically, if any, if their expectations were dashed in a consistent way where they felt they no longer had any skin in the game. You know, if they were truly proletarianized. Okay. um,
1: If you're fucking with people's ability to put food on the table for their families and friends, I think that becomes like a very fast injector of conflict. And so I would say that, I mean, even if you look at what the lockdowns have caused in terms of the isolation has caused some people to go into despair and depression, and it's caused some people to realize like, even if you were an introvert, for example, or you were, you know, kind of isolated, that you really miss people. And that doesn't have to mean that you want to go out and like have a totally intimate, like bonding experience every night, but even just the anonymity of society running at a given time, you know, if you're in a store or a bar and you're just kind of among the bustle of people. And I think that these lockdowns have kind of awakened people's like realization of, you know, to an extent, the uh interconnectedness of sociality and
2: well there actually maybe there is a fucking social because look what happens when you fucking don't feel like there is one. The walk out of that point, I think it will come in like fits and starts. Like there's not gonna be like a smooth or even development, either like temporarily or like spatially. In other words, like it'll hit other places and populations in certain ways at certain times. This antagonism I feel like has been ongoing in places like in the third world. Like it's already active and live. So you know, like the shit is like first world problems, you know,
1: by definition, I think it kind of validates what we're saying, if anything, because the stuff in the third world kind of points to the, you know, you look at 2019 was kind of the year of protests in a lot of ways abroad, especially.
0: Yeah, I suppose that's the question really, like, do we get a reassociation of the proletariat out of this stuff? Because look, I agree if there's fucking with the food supply, the ability for people to, you know, reproduce their lives, which by all accounts That's exactly where we're headed. You know, if that happens, then it's possible that we might see some kind of reassociation of the proletariat. And if that happens, sure, I could see us being ushered out of the age of the simulation, but it's important that it happens in a certain way and not like the uh, Michigan Liberation Front or something where it's like, uh, I'm sure we're all familiar with the hashtag LiberateMichigan.
1: If you want to talk for another hour, we should keep going with this.
0: Why? Because that's the real movement now? Because I don't know if society will get behind that.
1: I just know that it's a big can of worms. That's all I'm saying.
3: If we don't get to work, you don't get to work. Freedom is essential.
2: Our community is struggling. My husband is on unemployment for the first time in our life. And it's unwillingly that we're taking unemployment. We
4: want to go back to work. Time for our state to be opened up. We're tired of not being able to buy the things that we need, go to the hairdressers, get our hair done. It's
3: time to open up. We're ready to stand defiant against no. this governor and open up business tomorrow? Lock her up! Lock her up! Lock her up! Lock her up! Lock her up.
4: Uh, my name is Joseph Dixon, and I came out here to support uh, the Michigan businesses and uh, stand up for the, the rights of our fellow Michiganders. And we believe that uh, the governor has overreached and overstepped her rights with our uh, freedoms. Are you concerned about this virus? I was in the beginning until I've done my research and found out the realities and the, 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 the media's overreach on it, and uh, that it's not as serious as they made it out to be, and that's why I am here, because I feel that they are overreaching, overreacting, and uh, crushing our small businesses, crushing our economy. I see you're wearing a mask, so you appear to have some
5: level of concern.
4: Yes, well, I have concern. I have just common courtesy for people. I might be uh, here today. I might be a Republican, but I have common sense and I do have concern and respect for everybody. What would you say to the governor if she's listening right now? I would say governor, open our uh, economy on May
5: 1st and um, respect our rights and our freedoms. All right, that's a, a little bit of the sentiment we're hearing here. A, a lot of these folks, uh, a number of them that we've spoken to, are small business owners Are uh, or are here on behalf of those folks who say simply they want to see people get back to work. Some more folks here that uh, we might be able to speak with. Sir, what brought you out here? Where
3: are you from? I'm from Jackson, Michigan. And what brought me out here is I'm a small business owner and she's putting me out of business. What type of business do you own? I own a painting company. What what would be your message if the governor is listening? To listen to the people. We have common sense. We're not children. We know what's right and what's wrong and how to take care of ourselves. I've had a quadruple bypass. I've had a heart attack, a stroke. And I'm still not afraid to go out in public. It's how you take care of yourself. We're not, like I said, we're not her children. Follow common sense. Stay away from people. You know, not totally stay away, but you have to social distance a little bit. But until this virus runs its course, it's going to stay here. And all we're doing is hiding from it. Do you have any concern? We see a lot of people out here
5: that are obviously like you, not in your cars. Do you have any concern that this Gathering might cause this virus
3: to spread further. It will a little, but I don't think it's to the extent that they're trying to make it out to be. The, again, it's a virus. It's got to spread, and until people start getting an immune system to it, it's going to continue to do this. All right. And we will we will never get away from it until we get an immunity to it all right thank you sir
5: appreciate you. it all the way from jackson one of the small business owners who is here and uh represented in a crowd of hundreds of people who are gathered here on the capitol steps a number of them have signs uh one here in the front foreground says recall whitmer now we see a number of american flags a lot of those red make america great again hats uh folks certainly having a political uh feeling that goes associated with this situation. Its right wing character
1: reflects the left seated, all discontent to so this very kind of smarmy Daily Show kind of looking down on it. That I think is kind of a tell about how. Well,
2: because the class character is big capital has both parties, and the PMC get the Democrats, and the petty bourgeois get the right. So, yeah, the critique of, like, the Republican, like, protests are going to be, like, PMC, all hail the nurses and first responders, right? Like, that's that's going to be the class character of it. But you, you don't see, like, a kind of mass group being, like, delving into the complexities of how you might yeah. like, actually manage this, like, a communist. I think it's movement. a much more dispersed thing
1: when you look at what, what would be the real movement. I mean, I think that you could call stuff like the astroturfed, right wing stuff though I do think that obviously stuff like that is going to be of a mixed class character I mean you can look at for a very different manifestation or example of that we can talk about the yellow vests right like I do think that it had social content even though it was mixed class between um, the middle class and the proletariat like
0: right but that was less politically delimited the yellow vests are less a creature of the right than what's happening in Michigan
1: I was about to say that it's less so the dynamic here but I just want to point it out because it plays some role there and the kind of refusal of the left to examine you know things in a complex way but it ends up being really that more in that dispersed way where people aren't going to necessarily be total crazies and rebel against the lockdown like this early into it really and like still seeing what's going on with the virus and still waiting to understand like people are realistic that the state is bungling this what exactly your interpretation is of it or not I think a lot of people do feel like the response has been bad. And there's all sorts of ways that that plays out ideologically, but it's actually a shared sense among most people. I think that like this could have been yeah. done there. And so what that ends up creating is this diffuse like, Much more moderate, centrist, so to speak, in the kind of Marxist centrist ambivalence towards both extremes kind of meaning of the word. There's a kind of centrist, like, kind of following along with social distancing for now. Like, I understand why that's where society is at. Like, there's something about that that does make sense if this is the kind of state activity that we're going to be confronted with. Like, to not necessarily like, on an everyday level, I'm not going to run out there and like perform acts of great rebellion, I might try to resume my life or or not act as paranoid as some other people, but I am going to take some precautions. And so the extreme form of this that comes in people being like the manifestation of it as the protesters is like, it's a reflection in a kind of abstract way of what I think a lot of people are thinking, but it doesn't end up being as nuanced as what I think a lot of people are, are feeling, especially in the proletariat, which is like, eh, I'm not sure about this, but not necessarily going out and being a kook and getting all political about it. There's some benefits and drawbacks for different people and stuff like that.
2: I mean, I don't think you can like abstract like an archetypical, like normie, like perspective on this. There's two disparate sets of beliefs. I've seen people waffle back and forth on whether, you know, everyone just needs to get it or not. Yeah, uh
1: that's but- what I'm saying. Like There's a kind of ambivalence and that that, more than a unitary opinion, is what defines a lot of where people are at. So right, that's uh, really asserting kind of like a universal social opinion about it. That's not really what I'm trying to say.
2: Any kind of resistance that we'll see to it, I don't think will be organized like this. I think it will just be people just kind of like half-assing it or ignoring orders, which a lot of people already do. Because the military doesn't really have any political institutions like what we have is basically like these protests are clearly led by like the petty bourgeois and like big capital like the petty bourgeois are the ones out on the front lines of this and like big capital are like their backers
1: i do think there's something to be said for like we don't need to necessarily be cruel about i mean maybe a landlord it's it's kind of less important to me but like somebody who owns like a small barber shop or or something like that i mean we have to balance this with a Marxian sense that like you know, if you're a small business owner, and you hire laborers, you do end up exploiting them. And sometimes working at a small business can be worse than working at a big box store or something like that. But I do think that, you know, when you see somebody who owns a tiny shop, maybe they're them and their family are the only people that works there or something like that. And it gets like annihilated by this thing. And like a lot of good restaurants, maybe immigrant restaurants, ethnic restaurants, that kind of thing that are just going to get wiped out by the complete shutdown of the restaurant business and all of the laborers of you know a kind of a much more diverse background than some of what you're seeing in the protests themselves but actually they they do because of capitalism have some alignment with these small business owners in terms of where they draw their wages from and you know there's not a lot of faith in the state providing like an actual alternative in terms of like more than $1,200. It's going to be insufficient. So people do want their jobs because they know welfare is a joke in this country. And so it ends up causing problems for workers these like grievances that the petty bourgeois have. And I'm not talking about that, you know, we need this like perfect class cooperation or anything, but honestly, if somebody who owns like a small family immigrant business, like small business, like loses it, I'm not necessarily going to dance on the things grave. Like, you know, even if they're a Republican or something like, I I don't, you know, I don't.
0: Okay. Right. But you know, I guess the discourse is about someone who wants a haircut, you know, like it's not going to kill you to cut your own bangs. I'm not going to be happy if the most sympathetic possible idealized small business owner in the classical American, like liberal or right sense.
2: Bob from Bob's Burgers.
0: Basically Bob from Bob's Burgers loses his business. Yeah. It's not going to like make me smile. It's not going to like put a spring in my step. but I didn't didn't mean mean to imply it would, but think about, look, we are talking about often petty exploiters here, not just individual kind of like sole proprietors, just because it's going to like put a tear in our eye. If like, the italian place from do the right thing gets shut down it's um <laughs> <laughs> it's like
2: you know because he's trying it, to feed his the, family.
0: Yeah, listen the reality is like not quite
2: so clear cut although like, that was kind of the theme of that movie wasn't it i've been reading
3: about your leaders reverend al mr do sharp tone jesse keep hope alive that's fucked up keep hope alive hey that's fucked don't talk about jesse and uh, even uh, the other guy what's his name uh, Faraman, Farrakhan um, Minister Farrakhan uh, sorry Minister Farrakhan anyway Minister Farrakhan always talks about the so called day when, when the black man will rise we will one day what does he say we will one day rule the earth as we did in, in our glorious past yeah, that's right what past are you talking about what, what did I miss we started civilization man, keep dreaming man then you woke up
0: Pino Fuck you, fuck your fucking pizza, and fuck Frank Sinatra.
3: Yeah? Well, fuck you too, and well, fuck Michael Jackson. You Dagoob, Guinea, garlic bread, pizza sling, and spaghetti And victim on, Perry Como, Luchado Pavarotti, solo meal, non singer, motherfucker. You gold teeth, gold chain wearing, fried chicken, and biscuit eating monkey, ate baboon, big guy, fast running, high jumping spear chucking, 360 degree. Basketball, Duncan, titsune Spade, yacht Take your fucking pizza, pizza, and go the fuck back to Africa. Yo, hold up! Time out! Time out! Y'all take a chill. You need to cool that shit out, and that's the double truth. Come here, Man, right. I gotta go, I'm working, I'm, here, I'm working, doctor, I'm working. Doctor, this is the mayor talking. All right, all right. Doctor. Come on, what, what? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it, I'm gone.
4: Hey!
5: What are they doing? What are they doing?
3: What the fuck are they doing? Get him out of there! Get That's my place! That's my fucking place! Fucking niggas. my money, and want to get paid. You don't work here no more. Sal, so I want my money. Your money couldn't begin to pay for the winter you broke. Motherfucker, when the Raider raheem is dead. I know he's dead, I was here, you remember? He's dead because of his buddy, that cocksucker sucker started all this shit. He's responsible for that kid's death. And he wanted to close me, and you stood there like a fuck. And you watched him burn me down. I watched it, I also watched the cops murder Raider Raheem. You didn't get over from the fucking insurance anyway, Sal. You know the deal. What the fuck is wrong with you? This ain't about money. I could give a fuck about money. You see this fucking place? I built this fucking place with my bare fucking hands. Every light socket, every piece of tile. Me with these fucking hands. You know what the fuck that means? Yeah, it means pay me my motherfucking money. That's what it means, Sal. Okay, okay. Hey, Mook! It's the Mook man. I see you walking down the block. going home to your kid. Now, the news and weather. Our mayor has commissioned a blue-ribbon panel, and I quote, to get to the bottom of last night's disturbance. The city of New York will not let property be destroyed by anyone, end quote. His honor plans to visit our block get today. It, Maybe he should hook up with our own the mayor, a Big. You your love daddy says, register to vote. The election is coming up. There's no end in sight from this heat wave, so today, the cash money word is chill. That's right, C-H-I-L-L. When you hear chill, call in at 555-L-O-V-E, and you'll win cash money, honey. This is Mr. Smith.
0: That's all for this chat. So apparently our dialectical crystal ball wasn't plugged in or something, because when we recorded this we had no idea that, in about a month's time, the revolts in response to the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police would turn into the reemergence of the proletariat, essentially, as an actor in American politics in 2020. I think that gives some legitimacy to the hope on display from Jake and Grant, although I will say with a heavy heart that recording this on election day 2020 we don't hear a whole lot about those revolts anymore and we seem to be firmly back into simulation territory personally I'm glad that there was a real movement that came out of this for better reasons than just anti-shelter in place order sentiment and I really hope to see it continue so I really hope that doesn't sound smug another sort of dialectical crystal ball failure worthy of note Grant's points about Sweden held up at the time until just recently, towards the end of October, where COVID rates started to spike. However, Jake's point about Vietnam still appears to stand, as of recording this outro. Now on to an important order of business. As you may have detected, this is Grant's last podcast with us as a regular member. Before getting into why that is, I'd like to get into why I've considered Grant a comrade over the years that I've known them. Aside from friendly contact on Ultra Left Book, which is our dorky name for weird contrarian communist Facebook, our first project together was the wannabe proto-Marxist center group called Red Party, which C. Derek Varn, Grant, our mutual acquaintance Joe, and I accidentally destroyed by presenting the most basic dissent to a purely Leninist reading of the revival of Marxist program and party politics that we were all mutually interested in. This latter project is sometimes thought of as Neo-Kalskiism. This same spirit of accidentally wrecking a Marxist center project carried over to Swampside, where Grant and I both entered as Leninists and simply could not keep the faith over the years as we continued... To examine theory and history, etc. Probably my most blackpilling moment, though, was the actual interpersonal dynamics between the Leninists. While I was first mostly spared the wrath of our former Leninist comrades, who you know as Donald and Rosa, but I refer to the former by his real name, Mickey. Rosa requested that we don't use her real name, which seems reasonable to me. While I do feel a sense of, you know, betrayal from her, I can recognize that she's much younger than the rest of us. And part of what I really started to despise about Mickey is the way that he manipulated her, playing with her hopes in a way that seems to me to have led her down a dark path. The last thing I want to do with this outro is hurt her more. So parts of it have been re-recorded to conform with her wishes. They came down harder and harder on Grant, to the point of simply screaming at them, and just regularly treated them like shit, honestly. Considering they clearly got something out of talking to Grant and I week after week, it seemed disproportionate and politically motivated. In retrospect, some of their discomfort with Grant I think was probably justified, but I don't feel like their interpersonal behavior did them any favors. Because eventually it was my turn to be treated like garbage by people I thought had my back. When I made the terrible, awful mistake of co-founding Cosmonaut Magazine. Yes, I, Azri, co-founded Cosmonaut Magazine. I'm sure many people involved would deny one or more of the things that I contributed. But I was one of the first members of their editorial board. I designed a very slick website that they totally lied about me designing. I designed it in WordPress. I think they paid somebody, one of the only people they've ever paid, to put a middle ground in between the text and the background, so, you know, they just sort of deny that I did it. But I did it! And it's part of why people read it, because it's a beautiful fucking website. That was me! I edited lead articles, including heavy editing and even writing entire paragraphs in Rose's article about accelerationism, and I was even writing an article for Cosmonaut at the time all at the same time that I was editing Swampside episodes. So that is a lot of unpaid work. Apparently losing the faith in Leninism was enough to make me an apostate in the eyes of my former comrades. You might have heard a lie that stepping down from Cosmonaut was a mutual arrangement, that I didn't want to be involved with Mickey, Mickey didn't want to be involved with me. That was not true. I thought of Mickey as a comrade and as a friend, making some questionable decisions, until the day that he threw me out and blocked me on all platforms. Apparently Mickey thought he could block me on all platforms and still be part of Swampside somehow. But I was thrown out of Cosmonaut for reasons I still don't entirely understand after Mickey rage quit Swampside and refused to apologize for anything. In fact, he conducted a whisper campaign against me that I was a bully. I think it's pretty clear that if you've been listening to me on Swampside... I try to be very charitable, and I try to have the backs of people that I work with. I have this ridiculous sense of solidarity with people that I talk to on a weekly basis for years, that I now realize is not really shared, and is probably not a good idea. I've done a lot of soul-searching through this process. On ideological grounds, I challenge the wisdom of working with anti-revisionist Stalinists and so-called critical Stalinists. But I think more importantly, I wasn't doing a ton of free work fast enough for them. In that respect, it reminds me of the situation with the Catalyst Journal, where they threw out Robert Brenner after using him as much as possible to edit and promote the project. To Rose's credit, she tried to get Mickey to talk to me, but he wasn't interested. So I went to him personally, and he essentially like played the victim as if I hated him and I was bullying him because I lost the faith and that I thought it was a bad idea to buddy up with anti-revisionists. Now, if you're in a political podcast with somebody, you know, it's not just a Schmidtian game of friend and enemy, of I'm going to do something dumb and outlandish, and you're my enemy if you disagree with it, and if you bring any criticisms to my face. I don't know, I thought it was a pluralist project. I thought the emerging Marxist center organization was, it just wasn't shaping up the way that I was hoping it would, in part because of this Stalinist presence, and... You know, I didn't think that Cosmonaut should orient towards it. Now, whether Mickey acted unilaterally and then people just sort of covered for him or if he, you know, had the general will of Cosmonaut on his side is really immaterial to me because nobody, you know, sat down with me as, you know, we're the Cosmonaut editorial committee and we really need you to step it up. Or this or that. There's really no process like that. But he asked me to step down from the editorial board and I obliged believing I would still be welcome, to be involved with the project I started. But basically, by stepping down, Mickey turned around and thought it was okay to kick me out, and he turned Cosmonaut into his own personal fiefdom. Nobody involved with it bothered to dissent or complain that I was treated unfairly, which, I'm sad to say, does include Rosa. And conversely, anytime I try to tell this story, I get swarmed with his lackeys, who believe at face value that I'm a mean-spirited bully. I defended him, against people trying to cancel him, for giving too much credence for a guru that turned out to beat his wife. I kind of thought these interactions meant something, but to quote an anonymous, lifelong observer of Mickey, Mickey seems incapable of forming friendships with people online. He sees all of that stuff as instrumental. So, while I always treated Mickey charitably and had his back, it's simply not the case that it ran in the other direction. But, I mean, so it goes for women in Leninist circles, right? You do all the bitch work, nobody sticks up for you when the guru treats you like shit, and the only time people get upset is when you tell your story. I'm forced to agree with the tweet from an account which I shall leave anonymous. The people who write for Cosmonaut are basically the same people who both perpetrated and were the victims of the Great Purge, completely detestable and amoral individuals fanatically committed to organized psychosis, first as tragedy, then as farce. Personally... And this is Esri talking here. This isn't the Swampside line, I don't think. I highly encourage you to stay away from Cosmonaut. At least if you have any respect at all for me, like if you think of me as like a friend or something, like just don't fuck with it. And it runs deeper than you think. You don't know what it was like inside the Cosmonaut editorial board. I have personal receipts. So if you don't believe me, hit me up. Now, I say all that to say this. During that whole ordeal, Grant was one of the very few people who adamantly had my back and actively disputed the lies that Mickey and his magic kingdom put out about me. Tom and Sophia are the others that really identified this problem early and stuck up for me publicly. If you've been listening to me for long enough, you've got to know how much stake I put into the virtues of trust and having someone's back when it's inconvenient or unpopular. Grant did that and earned my respect in a way that just chatting with somebody, it doesn't inspire by itself. So this kind of loyalty really goes a long way with me. And if you've ever wondered why I would put up with this or that take from Grant, this is why. Because this experience with them gave me a sense of trust. So, I mean, I was willing to listen to Grant because I valued what I interpreted as their intellectual honesty and their interpersonal honesty. And, you know, maybe I accepted takes from them that I shouldn't have. I could admit that. Over time, this trust started to fray. It has to do with the so-called Australian anti-politics, and I put that in scare quotes, informal tendency that Grant has fallen into after being a Leninist. One of the primary gurus of this almost non-existent micro-tendency is Tad Tisa, who I had on as a guest on the predecessor podcast The Mortal Science, the Emancipation Research Podcast. While the COVID-19 hot takes from Grant had often seemed sincere as Grant works for an epidemiology journal and may well have been the first communist to write about COVID in English. From Tad, they seemed much more politically gamed. The other guru involved, David Rylance, who has been on From Alpha to Omega, went as far to say in private communication early on that the response to COVID was actually somehow about Brexit. As somebody who has taken a lot of the anti-politics rhetoric quite literally and sincerely, as it bears influence from some of the critiques of Marxist politics that come out of endnotes, and that frankly I was, you know, trying to get away from but once I lost the faith with Leninism, I was forced to confront. So I was kind of stunned by the politically determined character of a lot of the takes coming out of that camp. It seemed almost as if they needed to relentlessly counter-signal and be one step ahead of the game of the left all the time. But I held out for a grant. I simply didn't want to believe the same about someone who I held in high regard as a comrade and, you know, I thought as a friend. The breaking point for me wasn't really the COVID hot takes, but it was more about defensiveness around one of Tad's provocations. Tad had a tweet that compared Black Lives Matter to the Taliban. This was during the George Floyd uprisings and directly echoing Trump's rhetoric because part of the movement demanded the removal of statues, paying tribute to Confederate and other retrograde figures. When I pressed Grant and our mutual comrade Joe on this, they simply went into guru defense mode, and claimed that this was aimed at the liberal political class elements that had hijacked the movement and had, you know, nothing to do with the movements themselves. And, you know, I do know Grant to have participated in some of the George Floyd at least solidarity marches, so, so I'm not trying to say that they're like anti-George Floyd solidarity or, you know, that they're pro-cop or that they're against the riots or something. It was just that when I compared Grant's extreme charity towards the more clearly right-wing protests to the shelter-in-place orders, to this obsession with counter-signaling the left that ends up with mocking the only thing that could even plausibly be called the real movement of the proletariat in our lifetime, I decided it was time to part ways politically. Grant, shortly before this, had also resolved to leave Swampside, but I had felt ambivalent about that until that interaction. Now the feeling was mutual. I will say that I still think that Grant did right by me as a comrade, But I don't feel that they did right by the real movement of the proletariat, in a way that feels intellectually dishonest and makes me uncomfortable with associating with them politically. And after all the talk about not being consumed by politics, when trying to be their friend, I found it almost impossible to have a conversation with Grant that wasn't about the COVID discourse. And I kind of feel like I've lost that friend. It doesn't feel as acrimonious as it did with Mickey. It was more how things went with Rosa. With the caveat that it felt more like a drifting apart than some kind of personal betrayal. Where ultimately their loyalties were to a guru, which was a duty that came before truth, and eventually became more important than truth and friendship. (sighs) You know, as much as I hope things change, it's a pretty passive hope. I wish best of luck to all of them, with the exception of Mickey, who I think is probably a wannabe cult leader and should be studiously avoided. I've really spent a lot of time thinking about how to put this out there, and I feel like, on a podcast where I've put in half the sweat equity, this is the place. To quote Marx at the end of Critique of the Gotha Program, Dixie et salvavi, animam miam, I have spoken and saved my soul. Enough outro this week. You know what to do if you want to keep this podcast running. Keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and do the right thing, comrade.